Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now and it's the final snap of the season here in lambeau field and the o in motown officially stands for o and remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me james and god i hope someone else brought a win because i am empty-handed Diaz with you, hoping that we have somebody that can maybe provide that for us, James. We have a very special guest. He didn't put the O in Motown, but he did put the O in Lambeau. Please introduce yourself. That's right. It's me, Aaron Rodgers. You you know, there's an O in Aaron, so that's where it comes from. Let me tell you about vaccines. Before you take this too far off the rails, Aaron, let's actually bring back our very special normal guest who doesn't have crazy opinions about vaccines. All right, that's right. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Good luck with the Jets this year. If you win the Super Bowl, like Will Neff, I'll do whatever you want. Don't worry. It's fine. Have you seen an Aaron Rodgers Jets jersey in the wild yet? Because I texted you guys the other day while I was at Camden Yards, of all places. Because at first I see this, like, eight Jets jersey coming up, and I think it's someone who jumped the gun on Lamar getting traded to the Jets. But I have seen a Rodgers jersey in the wild. Have you, Xavier? What you have to remember is that, one, I live in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, and two, I do not leave my house ever. I mean, you've you've been home, you talked about, like, the lawn games that you played with your family. Now, I understand that was for a big family, like, moment, and that Aaron Rodgers jersey is probably not appropriate attire there. No one in my family is a Jets fan, other than myself. Smart people. Well, Xavier, if Aaron Rodgers' jerseys are not making memories for you, pray tell what is. So, I gotta be careful here, because every time I bring someone up, I end up jinxing them. I'm sorry, U.S. Under-20 team, but I will do a couple things. There is one team that is probably too strong for even me to jinx, and let's test those powers now, because I want to talk about the Oklahoma women's softball team, which I have previously talked about, it's insane because they lose Jocelyn Allo, the greatest power hitter in women's college softball history, and are immediately a better team. Last year, 59 and 3 win the championship. This year, they're 60 and 1, and they've already won one game in the Women's College World Series and now only need to win one of the next two against Florida State to take the title again. It's incredible how good, like, they can mercy rule you in four innings, or they can just come back and win it in the ninth. No matter what, they're never out of any game, and the amount of talent on that team is honestly scary. So I think that they can survive even my jinx. I saw a good amount of the game between them and, I believe, Tennessee, in which they were trailing 2-0 for, like, almost the entire game. And it was uh, the first Oklahoma game that I've been able to watch as early as, like, the second or third inning. And there was, they still just played with this confidence while down two runs the entire time, unshakable faith that they were going to still win the game eventually. Yeah, they, they never think that they're going to lose. And it's, 
honestly wild. I think that might have been the Stanford game that you that you were talking about. Ah, uh, you are correct. I think correct. they blew out. I think they blew it was out Stanford, Tennessee, not Tennessee. But yeah, they're 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 really good. So I hope that they can finish it off with a the win tonight for a sixty-one and one season and a second championship in a row, which would be honestly insane. Because well, so while you were going on about that, Xavier, I was looking up because when I hear the one, I need to know about the one. The one it was Baylor, right? It was Baylor on February 19th. It was their ninth game of the season. Four to three. Baylor put up a four spot in the third inning. It was just the one bad inning that uh, Jordy Ball had. She walked two in the inning uh, and also gave up a home run. Jordy Ball has a 109 ERA. She's like 22 and one this year, right? Those runs for that 1.09 had to come somewhere, and it sounds like they came from this one game. Literally just this one bad inning, because if you take away that one inning, she gave up three hits across five shutout innings. So remarkable dominance, but I mean, that's kind of the beautiful thing about baseball and softball is like, we have these super long seasons, and then it comes down to just like such an incredibly small sample size of games before them to be unflappable, as you mentioned, James. Incredible stuff. Truly the heart of a champion, and let's hope that we don't look like the giant fucking assholes on Monday when this comes out. Here, let me try and safeguard it. Go Knowles. Okay, anyway, moving on. And I, I did want to give two other quick shout-outs. One, although he had a difficult game in that loss to Uruguay, a shout-out to Josh Winder, who just became the first player to get transferred from the second division in U.S. soccer, the USL, for over a million dollars to Benfica, one of the three big teams in Portugal. This is really cool because... MLS as a closed league, you know, has a lot of control on ins or outs, and more young players are realizing, hey, if I go to the USL, it's not as competitive, but there's a lot more freedom, I'll get minutes, and I can still go over to Europe at a young age and continue my development. So it's like kind of a backdoor around the closed MLS system, which I think is really cool, and it'd be really nice to see Josh Winder succeed and see others follow in his footsteps. And the last thing I want to talk about is Rozang, who is a monster. <laughs> Just wins her second NCAA women's golf title in a row. And then immediately turns pro and wins her first professional tournament. The first woman to do that in 71 years, 72 years, I think actually. And 72 years. It's Beverly Henson. Not before because that, I looked that up or anything. And who was it before that? Do you remember who the the uh, the only other person has? Babe. I was going to say it's got to be the babe. It's got to be the babe. Those are the three women to ever win their first ever professional appearance on the LPGA Tour. I, um, I also think you've already undersold her a tiny bit, if I may, because you mentioned that she won her two individual titles at Stanford. Something that no female golfer had ever done in the history of college golf prior to that moment. And then she left college and won her professional debut, becoming only the third ever to do that. I mean, no matter what I'd say, I would undersell the achievements that she has made in her 20 years on earth that make me feel like a loser when I, when I see them, but she's really good. 
I think the people I've talked about today are too good to withstand the jinx. So let's see what happens. But I, I, I'm very excited to see you know how, how she performs going forward. Oklahoma softball team bus taken out by a wild <laughs> drive from Rojane. Rojane hurt her shoulder in the, in the process. Jesus. Everybody's okay, but they're not going to be able to win the championship now. Nope. I mean, if that uh, happens, people should pay me to talk about the teams they hate. I'm just going to make you talk about the fucking Yankees every week. You'd love to do that. If you pay me, that's fine. I'll take the money. <laughs> But uh, Xavier Diaz, if I may, Rose Zhang was someone that I uh, had prepared today because she fits an overall theme of a couple people that have been making memories for me, all of whom are coming straight out of college and immediately having incredibly hot starts afterwards. Most, you know, nationally seen at this point, probably more than Zhang, is Chaboy Christian Brown playing for the Denver Nuggets right now, who, uh, as of the time that we are recording this, have a lead in the finals. We'll just leave it at that. But Christian Brown just won a championship with uh, Kentucky or Kansas. I'm sorry. Please help me. Rock Chalk. Jayhawk. Uh, with the Kansas Jayhawks. He would become the sixth player to win a college championship and then immediately win an NBA championship. How many of the other five can you name? Ready, set, go. Straight from college to NBA championship. There were two of these that I knew and three that I'd never heard the names of before in my life. So Magic's one. Magic is one. Straight from college. I'll, I'll give you the college, and you should get this one immediately. San Francisco. Oh, Bill Russell. Bill Russell. Okay. I, I don't know any of the other three. So here, I'll give you the teams, years, and we'll see if you can get any of the remaining ones. Okay. We've got UCLA 1972 and New York Knicks 1973. Actually, Xavier, maybe ooh, you've got ooh, this. Wait, um, I know so many people on that Knicks team. But Do you need initials? Because no, I, I, I'm just going to go back and forth, because it was a very veteran-heavy team. So not Dave DeBusher, not Phil Jackson. I've named like seven players in my head, and all of them were long-term veterans. Right, give me initials. HB. I'm not going to get it, but it's going to piss me off when you say it. Just say it. Henry Bibby. But you know, I wouldn't have got that one. Well, there I, don't, I don't think he. I don't think he. That's what, yeah, like I had all. never heard of any of these remaining ones. But we'll still see. We'll still see. We got two more. Uh, Louisville, nineteen eighty-six, and then Los Angeles Lakers, nineteen eighty-seven. That wouldn't have been Jamal Wilkes. Not Jamal Wilkes. Initials are BT. Not gonna get him. Billy Thompson. Finally, we've got uh, Utah 1948, Minneapolis Lakers 1949. So three of these were with the Lakers in one city or another. This is uh, Arnie Farron. Oh, said Jordan Lakin. And- yeah, I wouldn't have got that one. Two all-time greats and then three guys. And you know what? Christian Brown would be a phenomenal guy to finish this up as just this excellent role player. So Christian Brown off to a hot start after his college career ended, as is Aaliyah Boston who is carrying on the Virgin Islands legacy of Tim Duncan after carrying on the leadership mantle at South Carolina from Asian after she became part of that incredible recruiting class by Don Staley, the Freshies, who did just wrap up their college careers at a 127-8 and eight record over their four Ridiculous. years. Uh, and so Aaliyah Boston knocked down the Final Four, but she does then become the number one overall pick this year for the Indiana Fever. 
In her third game, the Indiana Fever had lost 20 straight games at that point, which was almost all of last season and the first two of this year. But at Atlanta, for the Atlanta home opener, the Fever shut them down, got a win 90 to 87. She had 13.7 rebounds. So she is already, you know, helping end misery for the Indiana Fever, who have really had nothing going recently. And in particular, last year were just bad. And so now she's become a double-double machine, already won Rookie of the Month, and had a really good matchup against the Sky this week, where Kalia Copper did eventually force overtime. And the Sky did win, but Aaliyah had a 25-point, 11-rebound double-double. Just, she's just really good. Aaliyah Boston's incredibly good. Yeah, Indiana really got one there. So shout out to a friend slash acquaintance who has been able to cover Aaliyah Boston locally and keeps posting on Instagram. Some very cool shots of meeting Aaliyah Boston and other players. And I'm very jealous. It's incredible to think how far she's come because I think like her introduction into the national consciousness is missing two point blank shots to eliminate Stanford in the final four. And for a lesser player or a like less tough athlete, that could have been a breaking point. But instead, it's served as motivation, and you see how great she is now. So awesome to see her growth from that moment and just continuing to absolutely dominate down low. One of the most dominant low post scores, I think, already that we've ever seen in the WNBA. So that's her hot start. That's Christian Brown hot start. That's Rose Zhang's hot start. Diaz, are any hot starts making memories for you right now? Or perhaps something of a different flavor? Oh, no, it, it, is, it is another hot start uh, to round this out. So Xavier kind of alluded on this subject a little bit earlier. In the U.S. soccer system, there is no pro-rel, no promotion, no relegation. So each of these tiers of soccer kind of operates independently. And I want to talk about a team that is not even officially in any of the tiers. They're technically in the fourth tier, and I'm talking about the Annapolis Blues of the National Premier Soccer League. The Annapolis Blues were just founded this year. They play their home games at Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium, and the National Premier Soccer League exists in the quote-unquote fourth tier of U.S. soccer. I say quote-unquote because U.S. soccer only recognizes officially three tiers, so there's MLS, USL, and I don't even know the third one. It's the, second, U- the second USL. And USL. We USL ran out of acronyms. Here it is again. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing as uh, like England going from championship, then the League One, League, league one, Two. The league yeah. Two, yeah. So, yeah, you got US Soccer League, uh, USL Two, and then you have leagues like the National Premier Soccer League, which operate in this kind of amorphous fourth tier but they would be considered towards the higher end of this tier because their teams do get entry into the U.S. Open Cup, which is the American equivalent to, like, say, the FA Cup or the Copa del Rey for the English or Spanish leagues. So, like, a single elimination cup tournament style. But all that just to establish that this is the league that Annapolis is playing in. And I had the ability to work their home opener last weekend in their home opener at Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium. They smashed the record for attendance immediately. I think it was previously something in the 6,000s. Uh, they went well over 8,000. And honestly, like an awesome atmosphere. I've been to union games, and granted, that stadium is obviously much more conducive to a um, loud, good soccer atmosphere. But 
it was 8,000 engaged, not yet chanting because it was their first home game ever. They don't really have chants yet, but fully locked into the game. After each goal, the players were running into the stands to celebrate, and it ended up being a 4-2 victory for Annapolis in their home debut over FC Frederick. So a great debut, and it seems like Annapolis is thriving to be one of these kind of like mid-market cities that a lot of these lower leagues are trying to target. They're trying to establish teams in these lower regions. And Annapolis Blues, if the crowds keep coming out like that, I mean, it's genuinely one of the best atmospheres I've ever seen that I've ever been able to be a part of. And I hope that the Annapolis Blues will continue to make great memories along their way in the amorphous fourth tier of U.S. soccer. Correction to myself, because they renamed it. USL Championship is the second division. USL League One is the third. And then USL League Two is a semi-pro. So it's just champion. It, it is the exact same as England, like where it goes Championship, League One, League Two, but League Two is semi-pro, so it doesn't really count. I don't know. It sounds like it counts in our hearts. It sounds like the only Blues are on the field, and none in the feelings of the fans watching that team. That was very bad. Anyway, (laughs) these streaks were all very good. And combining something that was very bad with all of these streaks, I think, Diaz, leads to something that you want to bring to the table today. Right. I think there's certain things in sports that everybody just inherently knows, right? Kyle Ripken has played the most consecutive games in baseball history. Hank Aaron held the home run title for a really long time, and then Barry Bonds took it. I'm not going to get into that debate, but we all know those numbers, right? These are numbers that are drilled into our minds. There's some records where maybe we don't know the number, but they're still just as impressive. LeBron James became the all-time point scorer in NBA history this year. For the record, he currently sits at 38,652. He also holds a record for most consecutive games with at least 10 points scored. This is well over 1,000. He already hit 1,000 in December of 2020. So pretty uncatchable, pretty insane record. But I want to talk about a number and a record that nobody's probably given much thought to. But for every player who is extremely prolific in scoring, for every action there is an opposite reaction. And for every LeBron James or Michael Jordan... There is an equal and opposite guy who simply does not score the basketball. (laughs) Uh, That said, there's a lot of different ways to contribute on a basketball court. And this is a guy that found a way to contribute so much that his team did not mind one bit when he once went 17 consecutive games without scoring a single point, which is the NBA record for most consecutive scoreless games. This is a guy who, in his rookie season, averaged one point per game, and then 10 years later, matched that by averaging one point per game, would play three more years, finishing it off with 0.3, 0.3, and 0.6 points per game at the tail end of his career. For a guy like this to be functional on the court, you might consider him kind of a gadget player, and that's exactly who I want to talk about. I want to talk about Charles Jones, but better known as Gadget Jones. Good nickname. Elite nickname, I'm already wishing that I would have... Sorry, please continue. No, I totally, I I vibe with it. But born Charles Jones, uh, he was born 
April 3rd, 1957, in a small town in Arkansas known as McGehee. He would have a standout high school career playing for Desha Central, which was just a town over in Rower, Arkansas. And from there, he would go to Division II Albany State. This is not Albany, New York. This is Albany, Georgia, an HBCU that he would go to play for. But he was following in the footsteps of his older brother, uh, his older brother, Major. There was an overlap there where when Charles was a freshman, Major was a senior. They both played for Albany State. Major would eventually go on to play for the Rockets and the Pistons in the NBA. Major was following in his older brother's footsteps, Caldwell. Caldwell went to Albany State. There was an overlap there where when Caldwell was a senior, Major was a freshman. Caldwell would go on to the NBA where he would play for the Sixers, the Rockets, the Bulls, the Blazers, and the Spurs. And Caldwell, of course, was following in his older brother's footsteps, Will, Will had an overlap there where when he was a senior, Caldwell was a freshman, and Will would go on to play for the Pacers and Buffalo in the NBA. So that is four different brothers in the Jones family, each of them having one year where when they were the senior and the brother younger than them was a freshman, they both played for Albany State, and all four of these brothers would go on to play in the NBA. At least they didn't all have the same name. I keep thinking about Ricky Council now because of our other special guest. Or Rugnet Odor would have made this a very confusing situation. All the Rugglesses. <laughs> all the Rugnets and Rugglesses. But yes, all this to say, Charles Jones comes from a basketball family. And the fact that the timing worked out so perfectly that they each had one year where when they were a freshman, their older brother was a senior. And then when they were a senior, they had that same opportunity with their younger brother. Remarkable. And the fact that they all go to Albany State, this is already incredible in and of itself. Charles, of course, is the baby, though. So when he gets to his senior year, he doesn't have any younger Jones to mentor at Albany State. Across his four-year career playing for the Golden Rams, he would average 12.5 points per game to go with 12.9 rebounds a game. And this is good enough to get him drafted into the NBA. As the 165th pick in the eighth round by the Suns, he's the lowest drafted of all of the Jones brothers. Will was drafted with the 69th pick in the fifth round. Very nice. Caldwell was drafted with the 32nd pick in the second round, and Major was the 20th pick in the second round. So all of his other brothers drafted much higher than him, but all this to just show that he wasn't going to make it into the NBA as his birthright. Gadget was going to have to get a little creative and going to have to go on tour and go around the world before he's going to finally make it to the NBA. So while he was drafted by the Suns, it was in the eighth round. I don't know why the NBA had this many rounds of a draft back then. It's one of the craziest things to me of all time. Like, oh, he was drafted in the 12th round in a league that rosters 15 people. It's probably because people wouldn't sign like, I, I assume, didn't we talk about this with, was it the Japanese I mean, the, league? Uh, the first ever NBA draft pick, uh, he's been a guy of the day, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he did not sign. The first ever person drafted by the NBA did not sign with the NBA at any point. Sure, so it's probably a relic of that time, because even by this point, I would assume most people getting drafted would like to go on to play. But drafted in the eighth round, there's no opportunity for Gadget Jones to play for the Suns. So instead, he signs with the Maine Lumberjacks of the Continental Basketball Association. Yeah. Spends a year with those Lumberjacks. But now it's time for him to go over to Europe. He's going to play one year in France, playing for Nice. 
He's going to hop down to the boot. He's going to go to Italy and he's going to play for Benedetto Gorizia, which no longer exists. Uh, so that just tells you the kind of caliber that they are. Finally, after this, he does come back stateside for a stint with the Bay State Bombardiers. The Bay State Bombardiers, of course, were the continuation of the main Lumberjacks franchise. We all know this. And they were based out of Brockton, Massachusetts. And after playing here, he finally gets his chance to make his debut on a basketball court in the National Basketball Association for the first time with the Philadelphia 76ers. You guys know how to pick them. We sure do. We sure do. And he entered at a critical time in this Sixers season. So in February 12, 1984, the Sixers are going up to Boston for a crucial game against the Celtics. Dr. J leads the way for the Sixers with 30 points and nine boards on 13 of 19 from the field in a 109 to 91 Sixers win over the Celtics. Larry Bird did chip in 25 in this game, but only went seven of 22 from the field. And I think most notably, for our purposes at least, Gadget Jones goes 0 of 1 from the field, but 1 of 4 from the free throw line for one point. I mentioned at the jump that in his rookie season, he averaged one point per game. That is because this was his only appearance in the NBA that season. This was a 10-day contract. He was soon let go by the Sixers, and he would finish out the year playing for Bay State. The next year, he bounces back and forth across a couple different NBA teams. He plays for the Bulls, and then he goes to the Tampa Bay Thrillers of the Continental Basketball Association. The Thrillers, of course, famously won the CBA championship that year carried in large part by his contributions during the regular season but eventually he did get a call from the Washington Bullets to come back to the NBA so he finishes out that 84-85 season with the Bullets he played just three games scoring eight points and he would end up latching on there for nine seasons he's able to finally stick in the NBA make a name for himself here he would play in 595 games across these nine seasons with the Bullets and he would start 408 of those games. So very much the center of the decade for the Bullets. He averaged 21.2 minutes a game across these nine seasons. 2.8 points in those nearly 22 minutes a game. But there's a couple seasons in particular I want to highlight. In the 91-92 season, appears in 75 games. He starts 32 of those. Across these games, he scores just 86 points. But the reason why he's in the league is he is a great rim protector. Guard the perimeter, protect the paint, block some shots. That's why he's able to stick in the NBA despite not scoring any points. So does he, is he racking up, is he even getting like blocks and rebounds? Or is this just like entire, are these like Blake Snell minutes? Uh, Tony Snell is who you're thinking of. Tony Snell, I'm sorry. <laughs> Blake Snell doesn't get to stay on the. Uh, Blake Snell out there. is definitely worse at basketball. I mean, really, just the Snell name not being held up by either one of those two, I think. But we digress. To your point, James, yes, he's actually top 20 all time in NBA history in block shots per 36 minutes. He's just about two spots behind our boy Marcus Camby on that list. So he has a role out there. And in this particular season for 91 92, He scores just 86 points, but he blocks 92 shots. So for an entire season, he blocks more shots than he scores points. And of course, in almost every season of his career, 
he blocks more shots than he makes field goals. But in this particular season, it is even more than a two to one ratio, which is what results in him having more blocks than points scored. That's fun. Uh, I'm trying to think of what stat I would like to have more of blank than scoring. I don't know. I maybe, maybe steals. Just be like, I can't shoot, but I can take the ball from you. Yeah, it's it's just fascinating that like all of his production is essentially just through negating the production of the other team. Like that's exclusively what he contributes is a black hole sucking away stats from the other team. He just wants to play at barely above replacement level. You're going to make a career playing for the Washington Bullets if you can do that. So that, that was his 91-92 season, more blocks than points. The following season is where he took his offensive opposite of prolificness, I'm trying to think of. Because it's not inefficiency. Is it ineptitude or is that too mean? It's, it's not ineptitude because, like, again, he averaged 13 points a game at Albany State. He's like a 62% career free throw shooter. Awareness. So it's not like he has he, He's no aware touch. that it's not his job to score. Yeah, his awareness. He, he knows that's not why he's on the floor. And particularly so, he knew it in the 92-93 season. So with the qualifier that among players to play at least 500 minutes in a season, Gadget for this year set the record for least field goal attempts per 36 minutes of any player in NBA history with just 1.9. Across 67 games, he took 63 shots, which means that he took less shots than he played in games. There was minimum one game where he did not put it up a single time. There's at least four. We're assuming that he only took one shot in every other game. That's true. So multiple times. And like, I don't know if this was maybe a breaking point. They said we need somebody who at least looks at the rim. But this would be his last season for the Bullets. The following offseason, he goes unsigned for the first part of the year, but the Pistons in their post-Isaiah Thomas, Bill Lane Beard, Joe Dumars, Malays were looking for somebody to eat up minutes at the center spot for the second half of the season. So they did sign Gadget Jones. Played in 42 games all off the bench, but he averaged nearly 21 minutes a game, and he goes for just 2.2 points. The Pistons, again, in those doldrums, they missed the playoffs. To start the next season, 94-95, he again goes unsigned for a large majority of the season. In fact, we make it all the way until April, just before the playoffs are about to start. The Houston Rockets are defending their NBA championship, and they need somebody to eat up the backup minutes behind Hakeem. And who do they turn to but reliable? We know what we're getting in his age 38 season, Gadget Jones. And so Gadget Jones is called upon to be the backup to Hakeem for the playoffs. He plays in just three games in the regular season. He makes one field goal, goes one of two from the free throw line, which gives him that same one point per game for the 94-95 season as he averaged in the 84-85 season across one game with the Sixers. So 10 years later, same points per game, but it's when the playoffs start that Gadget is really going to make his mark. In the first round, he plays in 58 minutes across all five games of the best of five series against the Utah Jazz. He goes 0 of 1 from the field and 0 of 4 from the line for zero points across these 58 minutes. But his five blocks, three steals, and 11 rebounds helped the Rockets to knock off the 3 seed Jazz. The 11 rebounds were not his most prolific stat, though. One thing that I've neglected to mention about Gadget Jones is... While he is usually playing about 21 minutes a game, this means that 
he can be less risk adverse. He can be more, um, so he can commit more fouls is what I'm trying to get at. Um, So in those 58 minutes, he commits 17 fouls in this series against the Jazz. This means that if he were to play 20 minutes a game, he would foul out twice and he would be in foul trouble 18 minutes in to the third game. (laughs) I wonder who the foul per 36 leader all time is. He's certainly up there. In fact, I'll I'll spoil one thing that I was going to save to the end, but I'll mention it now. He finishes his career with more fouls than points. <laughs> I do like that. I do like that. And it wasn't like particularly close. It was like 200 more fouls than points. He knows why he's out there. He's out there to be, you know, this kind of enforcer, protect the rim. If you're going to come at the rim, you're going to have to get through gadget. But they knock off the Jazz in the first round. This leads them to the Western Conference semis where they play against the Suns. He doesn't feature as much in this matchup. It would go seven games and he'd only play in four of those. He would play 34 minutes. He would manage three points in this series. Two blocks, a steal, 12 boards, only four fouls. But the Rockets do advance four to three. Going forward now, he's reestablished as the main backup center to Hakeem. And in six games in the Western Conference Finals against the San Antonio Spurs, he plays 88 minutes, lights it up with seven points across those 88 minutes, also gets three blocks, and he bests his mark from the first round by going for 19 fouls in 88 minutes uh, in a 4-2 series win for the Rockets. Uh, so he was which, probably just beating the shit out of David Robinson. He had, he had one job out there, and it was to use his fouls. In the, words, in the words of John Chaney, you have five fouls, use them. But this sets up the matchup now with the Magic in the finals. This, of course, famously is the 4-0 sweep that the Rockets have over the Magic. He plays in 57 minutes across those four games. He averages that exact number that we love, one point per game, scoring four points across the four games of the finals. He gets seven boards, and his 15 fouls were just enough to frustrate Shaquille O'Neal en route to a 4-0 series sweep for the Houston Rockets. Uh, And finally, in his 10th season, Gadget Jones has reached the apex of the mountain. He has been a contributing player on a championship. And at age 38, another man could hang it up. But, my friends, he may have wanted to link up with Derek Torres because he had some more shit to prove. This is what leads us to our magical 17-game streak in the 1995-96 season. On November 26, 1995, uh, there was two important things that were happening. My parents were gearing up for my third birthday party, which was to happen the next day. And Gadget Jones scored four points to go with five rebounds in 10 minutes of action and a two-point loss to the Pistons. That's a substantial amount of Gadget Jones production. Filling up the stat sheet, so much so that in his last appearance in the month of November, in his seven minutes, he decided he didn't need to add any more points. He went 0-2 from the floor and 0-2 from the line for no points and a seven-point loss to the Jazz. Uh, and this finishes his November. For the month of December, Charles Jones appeared in eight games, playing in 23 minutes. He did not attempt a free throw, and he went 0-2 from the field across these eight games. He missed one shot in a December 12th 40-point victory at Sacramento. And on December 28th, in a 15-point win over the Nets, he again missed a shot. The Rockets went 7-1 and across these eight games that Charles played in December while scoring zero points. 
For the month of January, falls off a little bit. He only appears in seven games, playing in 20 minutes. He did not attempt a field goal in any of these seven games. He goes 0 of 3 from the line, including 0 of 1 in an eight-point win at Denver on January 17th. And he would miss both free throws in a 35-point loss to his original team to truly give him a chance long-term. The Bullets, on January 25th, the Rockets go 4-3 and three across these games. For the month of February, Charles Jones appeared in five games. On February 1st, he played four minutes, attempting no field goals in four minutes and a five-point win over the Charlotte Hornets. On February 3rd, he again played four minutes. He attempts one field goal, which he makes. It gives him two points and a one-point loss to the Supersonics. They do lose the game, but Charles Jones wins the war. His long streak of not scoring has finally ended. After 17 games consecutive with no field goals scored, Charles Jones is on the board with some points. How many minutes did he play in total over those 17 games? Over those 17 games, he played 54 minutes and scored no points. Okay. So over a full game's worth of being on the court and scoring zero points. Put this in further statistical perspective. He missed four field goals and five free throws across those 17 games. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot. But when we consider that he's a 48% field goal shooter for his career and 62% from the line, this meant that there was a 1,692 to 1 chance of Charles Jones missing all of those shots. This season would end with Gadget Jones shooting a career low 31.6% from the field and going 4 of 13 from the line would give him a 30.8% mark from the line. In 297 minutes, he scored just 16 points, but he did have 24 blocks, which makes it the second time in his career that he had more blocks than points. Believe it or not, 50% more. That's (laughs) all you know. He sounds like defensive player of the year candidate. Ben Wallace in another era. You would think that this would have been his sign to finally hand it up, but he still hangs around for two more seasons. For the 96-97 season, he scores four points across 12 games. He also blocks four shots in 93 minutes played. Finally, in his 97-98 season, he really starts going off from the floor. In 24 games, he plays 127 minutes and goes 7 of 10 from the field. This 70% mark was the best in his career. He also goes 1 of 2 from the line for 15 total points. With 15 points across 24 games, He also logged six blocks, but with his seven field goals made, this made it the first time in his career that Gadget Jones had more field goals made than field goals blocked. And that was when he finally knew that was the sign for him to get out. If I'm scoring more times and I'm stopping other people from scoring, it's time for me to get out of here. And so he does finally retire after his 15-year career of bouncing around the NBA. You're burying the lead a little bit here, though. How was his jump shot form? There is no recorded evidence. Of <laughs> Maybe we if I tell if it's better or worse than yours. If I really wanted to dig on YouTube, I'm sure I could find some free throw form. But again, 62% from the line. So it's not like he was just terrible out here. Like he had a decent enough shooting touch. It was also 62% from the line in college. So like consistent. 
Which Very does consistent. make a, a period of time where you would have, what is the five free throws? Yeah. Wild thing to only get that many while banging up with people constantly for whatever small amount of time you're out there. Right. And well, I mean, it's not like he's ever getting plays drawn for him on offense. You know, like if it's either he gets a rebound or he gets a pass off of somebody else driving. Like nobody's calling the gadget ISO. Nobody wants a gadget ISO. Um, and gadget go, go, gadget ISO. Go, go, gadget ISO. Go, go, no gadget ISO. Gadget does not want to ISO. Gadget wants to protect the rim and just be a nice, steady, dependable big man. Just a couple other things that I want to note about his career. So he does have that record for most consecutive games with zero points at 17. He's only tied, though, for the NBA record all time for most games with zero points. Would either of you care to guess who it is? And my only hint is that I'll say he has one of the best basketball names of all time. See, I was going to guess P.J. Tucker until you said that last part. It's not, it, it is a very P.J. Tucker-esque stat. This player did not play with P.J. Tucker, although he would have retired shortly before P.J. came into the league. Mavericks, super fun name. It's got to be a big man. It's, gotta be a big it's a big man. Uh, I don't know. I'm guessing, I'm going to guess it's some like foreign big man that the Mavs signed, like after Dirk. I, I, but I can't. Dejana Jop. Dejana Jop! Oh, he was on the fucking Bobcats team. Dejana Jop. All-time great basketball name. If basketball names were determining how good you were at basketball, Dejana Jop would have been an all-time great center. He, um, he was like a centerpiece of that truly atrocious Charlotte Bobcats season. He did a great job not scoring points for them because I'm sure at least a few of his 259 career games with zero points occurred in that Bobcat season. But again, that's a mark that he shares with Gadget Jones at 259. There is one player. If, if we take the sample of 500 games played in an NBA career, then Gadget Jones does have the least field goal attempts per 36 minutes of any player in NBA history. But if we drop that mark, to 400 games, then Gadget's 3.9 field goals attempted per 36 minutes is not the least in NBA history. It actually belongs to Michael Ruffin. Now, Michael Ruffin, you both know who Michael Ruffin is. You don't think you do, but you do. Michael Ruffin took 3.8 shots per 36 minutes, which is the lowest of any player in NBA history to play at least 400 games. However, he is also the player that, if you've ever seen the clip, of a Wizards-Raptors game where the Wizards player just throws the ball up in the air because he thinks he's going to kill the clock, and then Mo Peterson catches it and shoots it in one motion to beat the buzzer to force overtime so that the Raptors win the game. Michael Ruffin is the wizard that grabbed he's that the ball. Dingus. And threw it up. Yep. He's the guy that threw it up in the air. And when you look at this guy, you see, like, okay, like, long limbs, center, making a really stupid basketball IQ play, playing for the Wizards. I always thought it was JaVale McGee, but it's not. It's Michael Ruffin. <laughs> Just, it does feel like something JaVale McGee would do. It's a total JaVale McGee move, but it was actually a Michael Ruffin move. Uh, two-time champion JaVale McGee. We should say three-time three time. Three time champion. He might be three-time. Former Sixer JaVale McGee. Played three games for us one time. I believe he won one, the one with the Lakers after the two with the Warriors. He did, you're right. Yeah, three-time champion JaVale McGee. Olympic gold medalist. JaVale McGee. That's far be it for me to slander an Olympic gold medalist. Something we've never done before. But back to one-time champion, Gadget. One-time champion, Gadget Jones. And, I mean, just 
There's so many remarkable things about his like lack of scoring. But to me, the craziest thing is that 94-95 season with the Rockets. He's like not even playing in the CBA during this season. He's just signed off the couch, basically. I'm sure he was working out and staying in shape. But he was not playing basketball anywhere professionally. And in late April, the Rockets defending their title said, we need somebody to back up a team. And they bring in Gadget Jones, and he does the job. Plays very admirably in his minutes. They sustain without Hakeem Olajuwon on the court. And he gets a ring for it. And it's not one of those, like, he was on the end of the bench and gets to get a ring. Like, he was a contributing backup on that team. And then the next season, he went 17 straight games without scoring a single point. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's my guy, Gadget Jones. Gadget Jones, fourth of Is his family. Trying too hard. Fourth of his family to go to the NBA. There are two other Charles Jones that played in the NBA. Neither are related to him, and he was the first Charles Jones to appear in the NBA. It's strong. The The thing that immediately jumps out to me does feel like that streak benefits a little bit from a paltry few minutes a game. Three minutes a game. It's, it's certainly helped by it, but I think when we put the, the field goals and the free throw percentages into the equation of like, Sure, there weren't a lot of shots, but the fact that he missed all of them is crazy. That's true. That's true. But, I mean, this is just the opening act. We still have two more incredible streaks that we need to hear about. Do we have any takers who, who, would, who would like? I'm, I'm trying to do like... I can Brady go next. Right I, I feel like James would, would, would like to bring it on home at the end, so... I, I want us to put a pin in what you just said specifically, that phrasing. But Xavier, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear what you've got for us today. Let's strap in. So I'm very excited uh, about this topic. And I brought something that I think Diaz is going to love. We have talked about a lot of boxers uh, on this show. Usually it's been someone who's moderately successful, someone you know with an interesting hook to talk about. But today I want to talk about a boxer with possibly the most inauspicious streak in the history of the sport. Man with the longest winless streak in professional boxing at 88 matches in a row without a win. That man is Peter Buckley. So Peter Buckley, the Brummie. He was born March 9th, 1969, Birmingham, England. Youngest of nine children. Not a great area and Buckley's dad dies when he's young, ends up having issues with the law, gets stabbed multiple times, ends up in a juvenile detention center at the age of 15. But he gets out, and there's some people in the area who they had taken notice when he was a preteen. He was amateur boxing on the scene, had won 50 matches as a kid. And there was a, um, there's a lot of Xboxes in the area, and they're like, you know, maybe we can make something out of this guy. So, at the pub one night with an ex-boxer named Rocky Lawler. Uh, he described him as well-respected... Oh, what a good fucking boxer name. Describes him as, quote, well-respected geezer, only little, but a proper dangerous fucker. Still is. We always knew each other because oh, both our families are Irish, and one night in the pub, he offers to take me over to a pro gym in Dudley for a spar. Next thing I know, I'm having a medical and making me pro debut for Nobby. It all happened a bit too quickly. You gotta, his... you gotta try the voice a little bit sometimes, Xavier. I okay. want to hear your brogue. So, so that's the thing. Peter Buckley 
has the voice of a chain-smoking brummy from the 60s who has been punched in the head a lot. So it's, me friend, and I cannot do that. I will not try, I will not insult your intelligence by doing that. But I will say that his manager, Nobby, the company that he ends up working for is called Losers Limited. So just, just be aware of that. Is this like where they rent out the the tomato cans from? So, within a couple weeks, he gets his first pro fight. Uh, he faces up against fellow debutant Alan Baldwin on October 4th, 1989. It ends in a draw. He fights again a week later. Then, he wins six fights in a row. Was the second fight a draw too? The second fight was a loss. So it goes... Draw against Alan Baldwin, loss against Ronnie Stevenson, and then wins six in a row against Robert Braddock, Neil Leach, Peter Judson, Stevie Woods, Wayne Taylor, and John O'Mara. All of these fights in the West Midlands area, either in Birmingham or Wolverhampton or somewhere similar to that. Two years later, he's fought a lot. He's got 17 wins, 10 losses, four draws. Lost a little too much to, you know, still be considered an up-and-comer. He had two traits that made promoters really like him and made him essentially invaluable as a fighter. First, he was always competitive. He was rarely ever outclassed. Like, one of the very few times he was was when he fought Duke McKenzie, who ended up being a three-weight world champion. Usually, everything he fights, it's close. It's going to be within a point or two. And because of that, he settles into a role where he's perfect opponent for beginners. He has 129 fights against youngsters with five or less professional matches under their belt. Because of this, he earns the nickname the Professor of Pugilism, shortened to just the Professor. He was a teaching moment for aspiring young boxers. They essentially, they'd call him up, go and fight them, and give, give him a bit of a challenge, keep it close, help him get comfortable with the realities of professional boxing, then lose to, you know, boost the confidence of the fighters and wave him off to greater things. In fact, one of the British boxers he played this role for is someone that Diaz is a big fan of, Prince Nassim Hamed. Somebody had to teach him how to move like that. I knew it had to, it's Peter Buckley. Prince Nassim Hamed, his sixth career fight was against Peter Buckley on November 12th, 1992. Before you ask Diaz, I do have grainy YouTube footage of the entire fight. As Peter Buckley says, quote, I knew Nas before he turned pro. He was a cheeky little shit. I was never intimidated by him. When the fight was offered, I jumped at it. Against me, he never flipped over the top rope, and I won a couple rounds. He didn't hurt me once. I love that. Because, I mean, look, I love Nas, but he was my entrant in our villain category. And they do end up fighting again, like a couple months later. Because he goes the distance in the first fight. Fight again. Ahmed wins by TKO. Buckley says, the second fight, that stoppage was bullshit. When the ref stops it, you can see me going mad. Afterwards, Nas told me I would have beaten you anyway. I told him to fuck off. To be fair, he's always shown respect for me. I love it. <laughs> the last good kicker. This fucking kid can't hurt me one bit. Never has, never will. I respect the shit out of him. <laughs> so that's the first thing that, that makes him very valuable. The second is that he's always available. And when I say always, I mean always. I'd be sat at home 
and me manager Nobby would ring to say there's a fight going. I'd ask when. He'd say, I'm on my way to pick you up. Once, I was having my dinner after training. Nobby phoned and said there might be a fight. I asked when. In two hours. I carried off my dinner when he phoned back and said the fight is on. He would just get up and go from dinner and then go fight people. Like, he was the guy they called whenever something fell through at the last minute. They call Buckley, and he's always there. Stay ready and you don't have to get ready. This, this is a good one. I was once under my car. It had broken down. I'd burned my arm. Nobby phoned to ask if I can get to Nottingham for 6 p.m. It was 4 p.m. and my car was broken down. He somehow gets there, fights, loses, but I bought a car the next day. That's a good way of framing it. This is a job. This is just yeah. a job. Yeah, well, he, he once took a four-hour train to Scotland without phone service just to get there and find out that the fight was canceled. But he would always be there and, you know, always make sure that the show would go on. One of the ways he was able to do this was because he was a very good defensive fighter. Now, when, he, when he says, he talked about how Med didn't hurt him, there are very few people who actually hurt him because he's very good at essentially just minimizing any damage and going the distance. He said he preferred fighting better fighters, even though he did fight against a lot of, you know, young guys, just because when you fight a novice, you don't know where their punches are coming from because they don't know themselves. When you fight a top-class kid, there'll be textbook, which is easier to read. He once hurt his shoulder, like just outside of boxing, but couldn't stop fighting because he needed the paychecks. So he learned how to essentially fight with one arm for that entire six months. And so he just learned how to, like, really keep himself from getting hit. He said, my ideal night was coming out without a mark on me. I just wanted to move around. I wasn't out to win titles. This is important because not only is it financially important for a journeyman to go the difference, but medically, if you get stopped, you can't fight for a month. And this is a guy who would take multiple fights every month, you know, to pay the bills. So, like, he had to make sure that he wasn't getting hurt. And he was really good at doing it. After nearly 20 years, he retires October 31st, 2008, scoring a points victory over Matt and Muhammad in his 300th professional fight. This was his first win in five years. And five years for some boxers is like three fights. This was his 89th fight over that time. And uh, they gave him like a crystal cup and an honorary championship belt. And then pushed him off the ring because they had to get the ready for the main card like a couple minutes after that. But he said it's been a great journey. It wouldn't change any single minute of it. Even all the losses, he wouldn't change any minute of it. We're 300 fights. He won 32, drew 12, and lost 256. And of those 256 losses, he went the distance 246 times. God damn. He won more than he got knocked out. He drew more than he got knocked out. Yeah. So he does note that you know, more than 60 of his fights were half-point decisions. So things could have gone differently. Uh, you know, he could have had some more wins. And to be fair to him, he really isn't wrong, because I did a lot of research into Britain's journeyman culture. If you look at fighters with the most losses, they're all British journeymen, because this is an important position in, in the UK. There are worse boxers than Peter Buckley. Christian Lacht, I think, is the, technically the worst boxer ever. And they tried to, like, remove his license because they thought he was a danger to himself by getting in the ring. But the thing about the journeyman, 
is that everyone knows that the fights are supposed to help build up the confidence of the young guys. So even if Buckley should have won, if it's even in any way close, they're going to give it to the kid to do what... Everyone's there for a reason. I rec- Not recently, but I saw about a year ago, Ricky Hatton's son, Campbell Hatton, was fighting on... I think it was a Joshua Ushik undercard. And he got fucking mollywopped for six rounds by this journeyman Argentinian guy. And at the end of it, they gave the decision to Campbell Hatton. So I'm sure there's at least a few of those in there for Buckley as well, where he was clearly the winner, but he knew what he was signing up for when he took the gig. And it's an unfortunate part of boxing, but it's a real part of boxing that sometimes you just need the guy that knows how the story's supposed to go. And I think that's the the big thing in in that, as he said, you know, he wouldn't change anything of it. And he also said that, you know, quote, real boxing people would know his skills better than anyone just looking at, at his record. Not all of his fights were meaningless. He did have one championship fight where he, he went to Austria fought for the WBA super bantamweight title against uh, Harold Geyer. Knocked him down, but did lose. And what he maybe complains is a bit of a hostile atmosphere against the, the hometown guy going for a championship. But he's a guy who boxing was a job, but it was also something he loved. And he was really good at making sure that the show always went on and performed a valuable service with his losses and draws by helping the, you know, the next generation go through. And like he fought against more than a dozen British fighters that would go on to win different levels of championship. Like that was what he did. And that's what he was really good at. But it is kind of funny because when Kell Brook fought Errol Spence for the IBF welterweight in 2017, Spence specifically made fun Brooke for making his debut against Buckley. But, uh, yeah. With the longest winless streak in all professional boxing, very valuable journeyman boxer, Peter Buckley. Yo, can, can I just say fuck Errol Spence? Let's ban him. <laughs> Let's ban him right now. I do love the, you know, there's something very power to the proletariat of his, like, yeah, you need me to come in and just, like, be in a ring I will do that almost every time. I'm going to just punch in at work. No, sorry to, to belabor the puns, but <laughs> that's phenomenal. However, Xavier, you did set me up to bring it home. And, and I just want to one more time appreciate how much you specifically set me up to bring it home. Now, you guys have throughout the season rejected my attempts at international guys. You've rejected all of the nationalities and ethnicities I've brought all the sports like volleyball trying to, to spice things up when i did boring white guys with the standard four sports you seem to connect with that a little bit and so to try and placate the two of you i've once again picked up a boring white guy i just think like i have to vote for you now just to mess with you just to be like <laughs> like i want i like make you have to bring people you hate just for wins well and let me be clear i don't hate this guy I love the guy that we're going to talk about dearly. And I need to talk about, real quick, another guy that I have some complicated feelings with to kind of set this up. So we're going to go back in time to April 1st, 2019. We're in Toronto. And in the top of the first, Toronto's melting down a little bit. They've got the bases loaded. Chris Davis is up to bat. And he draws a bases loaded walk. So he gets an RBI as Trey Mancini comes in. Now, Chris Davis is in the midst of what is going to be an 0 for 54 streak. Between two seasons, 
over 54. It's the worst in MLB history by eight at bats. We're still 12 days away from that. And I bring this up because during this time, he does still get this RBI. In fact, he even gets another RBI days later against the Yankees on a fielder's choice because the RBI is a weird situational stat that just continues to exist in baseball since came in 1920. And I think that illustrates it maybe better than anything else. Because oftentimes people get stupid plays where they maybe didn't influence it. Like there's, there's a different Orioles player who on September 11, 2015, he goes 0 for 3, but he has two different ground outs that score RBI uh, against the Kansas City Royals that day. Looks like it's going to be a 6-4 loss before the O's complete. A massive 10-run eighth. They come back, they win that. That guy gets pulled during that rally, which means that those two RBI that he has, and this is my moment to be a, a pedant for this episode, and then I'll try to rein it in. It's always RBI. It's either run batted in or runs batted in, a run created by a batter's actions. Those would be the last two runs created by that batter's actions for a very long time. And that batter is my guy today, Caleb Joseph. Sounds familiar. I lo- love love a two first name guy. Two first names, Caleb Joseph. And I mean, he played for the Orioles, a team that your favorite team beats up on a lot very, very recently. That is, however, not where he starts. He does start back in June 18th of 1986 in Franklin, Tennessee, where parents Mark and Lori Joseph, their oldest child, is about 20 miles south of Nashville. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Nashville? I thought this was a music city. And uh, Franklin is similar, it is very musical. One thing I want to highlight real quick about the school that Caleb Joseph is going to go to, Franklin High School, a couple of dominant programs, women's soccer. But other than women's soccer, their next most dominant program is their marching band, which is a six-time state champ, including five state championships since 2012. And maybe the most famous alumna of Franklin High School is a former member of that marching band, Kesha. No shit. Uh, no shit. I guess some shit, because yes, this is the truth. Ke dollar sign ha. <laughs> Ke dollar sign ha. And also Hank Williams III, who's a country metal fusion artist. Uh, but there is also a baseball team at Franklin High School. That is where Caleb Joseph follows in his father's footsteps. His father had been a ball player at college. And so he takes up the sport. He's a catcher even now in high school. And his senior year, Diaz, get this, he plays with his freshman brother on this high school team. What an incredible thing that surely didn't happen three other times on this episode already. <laughs> it, well, I can assure you it happens no more times in this story. It is just Caleb and Corbin. Uh, they have a very good season. He's getting some offers from Vandy, from Arkansas, but they're not necessarily guaranteeing him a lot of playtime. The school that is, is the alma mater of his father, Mark, and that's Lipscomb. So he agrees to go become a Lipscomb Bison and plays with them in the Atlantic Sun Conference and the Cape Cod Baseball League the next couple years. He's an all-star in the Cape Cod Baseball League while he's there in the summer, and this sets him up for the 2008 run with the Bisons. He bats 342. This is his junior year. He's got a slugging percentage of 615 in 63 games, 17 home runs. This is the first ever conference tournament win for the Lipscomb Bison, so already incredible. He is all-conference. He's the MVP of the conference tournament, and he gets Lipscomb their first ever spot in the NCAA tournament. They go to the Super Regional, hosted by Georgia, already the favorite in this bracket, and is eventually going to exit this bracket. I'll give a little bit of spoiler. But when they exit that bracket, 
That is with the knowledge that they start that bracket with an enormous upset loss to the Lipscomb Bison. 10 to 7. Lipscomb has won their first ever game in the NCAA tournament. They do not win another one. They lose to Georgia Tech and then to Georgia in a rematch. But they get that beautiful first win. And that is the very final game for Caleb Joseph with the Lipscomb Bison because we are now at the 2008 MLB draft. It is a pretty forgettable one. The most notable person from the first round is Garrett Cole, who does not sign this year. This is not yeah, the draft yeah. where he plays. And he is probably the biggest name still to come out of the first round of this draft. In the seventh round, we have reached the Orioles pick. It's 206th overall. They do select Caleb Joseph. Fun fact, though. Remember that brother that was a freshman when he was a senior, Corbin? Well, Corbin's been a dynamite shortstop at Franklin High School all these years. And 66 picks earlier in the fourth round, the Yankees signed Corbin Joseph before Caleb Joseph was later selected. They are one of the only pairs of brothers ever to be selected in the amateur draft at the same time, though certainly with not huge pedigrees. There is also one other weird thing about the 2008 draft. Afterwards, this is completely unrelated to all of the living play. Well, all of the young players. It is all living players that are then selected in a Negro Leagues special draft. This is an idea by Dave Winfield. And it, it, I thought this was silly at first. It, I've come around on it since reading up tiny bits. So I'll just tell you briefly that this was an idea where all of the living Negro Leaguers they could get, they rounded up into like a, a pool of approximately 30 or 32. And the MLB teams in draft order drafted these former Negro Leaguers as a way to kind of honor them. Now, this does sound silly because you've got like now officially Emilio Navarro, who is uh, the first Puerto Rican player in the Negro Leagues. He, at the age of 101, is technically the oldest player ever taken in the draft. And Mamie Peanut Johnson is technically the first woman ever taken in the MLB draft. But all of the players in like quotes afterwards said that this was very meaningful and very nice. And you know what? That makes it entirely cool so now i'm all about this good for you dave winfield and good for the joseph family now two sons entering the professional ranks caleb he's with the o's and in 2008 he's going to go to their low a ball at this time affiliate the aberdeen Ironbirds, has a solid season 2009 moved his way up a little bit now he's with the uh advanced frederick keys same frederick that the annapolis blues whooped on recently although the keys are now an independent team and then 2010, again, he's just making his odyssey up the minors, makes it to the double-A Bowie Bay Sox. And Caleb Joseph will be very, very comfortable at the double-A Bowie Bay Sox stadium. He is there that year. He's there in 2011. He's there in 2012. 2013, he is still there. Mid-season, he is an all-star. He is the winner of the Home Run Derby for these minor leagues. And he is eventually named the Eastern League Minor League Player of the Year. Despite this, not only is he exposed to the Rule 5 draft, nobody takes him. That seems dumb. It seems really dumb. One could say that uh, it was dumb. This is a bat-first catcher, and you'd think that is something in demand. The problem for Caleb Joseph with the Orioles in particular is that they've got a pretty good catching situation. Right now they've got... Tell me if you've heard me say this recently, a can't-miss switch-hitting catching prospect who's going to turn the losing ways of this franchise around and be the savior we've been waiting for. That's right, everybody. It's Matt Wieters, who, despite my cynicism, I have a lot of affection for and did live up to some good standards. Maybe not expectations, but certainly high standards. He's been an all-star and a Golden Glove player in two consecutive years, 2011 and 2012 at this point. 
And the Orioles also have been solid. So, like, there's no reason to ship him out and bring up Caleb Joseph, who might be something. In 2014, in particular, Matt Wieters is on a fucking tear to start the season. It is still now Matt Wieters is retired, so it will go down as his greatest offensive season ever. He's been 308, 339, and 500 by the time that he, with an OPS plus of 132, his career high hits the IL with an elbow injury that later leads to him a catcher getting Tommy John surgery, which was truly the point in the 2014 season where I was sure that everything was going to blow up because we're right around the time where Manny Machado is going to have season-ending knee surgery. Our original closer, Tommy Hunter, has just been getting blasted to smithereens recently. Chris hey, do you Dave, want to relive this? Hold on. Hold on. The regular season ends up being okay. We've got also, I should mention, Nolan Rymold recovering from botched back surgery. And now we've got Matt Wieters. But 2014 was a year where somehow they just plugged every hole. Like the leader in war for the 2014 Orioles is Steve Pierce with 5.8. That is eventual <laughs> World Series MVP with the Red Sox, Steve Pierce, leading the team. And you know, when Wieters went down, it was next man up. And eighth on that leaderboard is Caleb Joseph, who comes in at that point once this injury has happened to initially kind of be the backup to Nick Hundley, who had been the backup up to that point. But Caleb Joseph is solid. In that 2014 season, he at one point became the first Orioles catcher to hit a home run in five consecutive games. And I said that with air quotes because he doesn't play in five consecutive games. It is five consecutive games that he appears in, sure. But now he's given that record. And that's just a little silly. He's batting that first year, 207, 264, 354. Pretty good if you are a competent catcher at that point on a team that has a lot of other good offensive pieces, which somehow the 2014 Orioles did, despite all appearances. They go 96 and 66. They win the AL East. The 2014 playoffs happen, and we move on to 2015. <laughs> Here's the Caleb Joseph barely factors into them, so it's fine. We're moving on. Yeah, it's yeah, 2000. yeah. 2015. <laughs> I mean, here's the ALDS happens. That was great. And then we move on to 2015. And Matt Wieters is still recovering. So initially, Caleb Joseph is the primary catcher. And then once Wieters comes back in June, he takes a back seat. He's still a perfectly fine backup. He's better certainly than like James McCann or Robinson Chirinos, who've been the backups for us the last two years. He himself is riding those 2014 vibes. Everyone that was a part of that team got just that good stink on them from us and could do no wrong for a long time. He seems like a fun dude, you know, has the Crash Davis-like stat of with those Bowie Bay Sox having set the record for most ever games with the Orioles AA affiliate back when he played his 400th with them in 2013. He, uh, by the way, got two things for that. He got a jersey that had the number 400 on it and... He got 400 Reese's products because it was his favorite candy. See, that sounds good in theory. But whenever you get that much of something, that, of a sweet that you like, you get sick of it real quick. I don't know, man. Well, and here's the thing. Like, the reason I know is because Caleb Joseph, because he was so, oh, I'm the goofy backup catcher, was featured in, like, all of the promotional videos all the time. So I heard this Reese's story often. I also heard about how he plays drums all the time. Like, we were so uber aware of Caleb Joseph, but, you know, 2015, it's going okay, and he's riding those vibes. So we still love Caleb Joseph. And we get to September 11th, 2015. It's that game against the Kansas City Royals. He has a strikeout, and then he has his two ground outs that get him two RBI for the game. It would be 
a very long time until he records another RBI. We have nine more games in 2015, and they are like lucky to finish 500 at that point. They scrape to the end. So no one really notices that the backup catcher has gone nine additional games without an RBI. And then we get to 2016. The Orioles get off to a hot start, 7-0, lean the division by as many as five and a half games. And during the All-Star break, you know, 51 and 36, two games ahead. Matt Wieters is the backup All-Star catcher. So again, no one's really paying attention to the fact that at this point, more than halfway through the season, the backup catcher, Caleb Joseph, hey man, he, he has zero RBI. That seems a little weird. At this point, he's not good. He's batting 182. He's got an OBP of 239, slugging 212. That is a bad stat line, sure. But it's not unprecedented. And despite that, he has no RBI because, again, this is something that entirely depends on the players around you. It depends on the lineup ahead of you. It depends on the contexts in which you're coming in. This isn't just one person failing. It's a lot of failure. Sure, you can hit it over the fence every single time, and that is an RBI. And to that point, he had had some pop prior to this season. But other than that, this is still kind of a quirk. Now he goes down to the minors. It's an injury rehab. He took a ball to the balls, so he does have to get testicular surgery. But uh, maybe it unlocks something. He's down there in the minors, knocks in a couple runs. And so, again, he gets back to the Orioles. No one's really thinking about it. Ozu kept up their pace in his absence. Then he starts getting a lot of plate appearances in July, and he's actually a little better. He's batting 229. Still, though, zero major league RBI, and the Orioles are tumbling now. It's 12 and 13. I don't know, man. Would maybe help if our backup catcher knocked in a run every once in a while. August. They go 12 and 16. They dropped a third. Caleb has now played in 40 games. Still no RBI. He even gets sent down to AAA to get some more at-bats. And once again, in the minor leagues, more RBI. And at this point, when he gets sent down to Norfolk, like people know about it. People have started to realize this streak is happening. So he, you know, pantomimes getting a monkey off his back when he gets on the first base with that RBI with the ties. Now in the minor leagues, 21 games, 11 RBI. An above average pace. Speaking of pace, at this point, I want to make clear that during this year, every major leaguer, on average, knocked in one RBI every 8.89 plate appearances in 2016. Caleb Joseph gets back, and he just keeps going. We get to game 156. It is the bottom of the seventh, facing Patrick Corbin. The Arizona Diamondbacks are in town, and Patrick Corbin gets him swinging for strike three. It is his 141st plate appearance of the season. He's recorded zero RBI, and it is his final plate appearance of the season. He finishes the season with a 174 average and an OPS plus of 13. That's terrible. Sure. There's it would no have been better if he got single digits. I would have loved it if it was single digits. It's not single digits, but it is atrocious. However, during his 141 plate appearances, there were only 83 total runners on base. Even with just that, the average major leaguer would have knocked in 16 RBI. He has zero. He had 27 different opportunities with runners in scoring position. And he recorded two singles. Both of those times, they were like laser beam singles and no runner was able to advance home. He had one instance where a runner was on first, two outs, and he just smokes a double. And still, the runner holds up at third. He is not able to record an RBI. The odds of this happening in 141 plate appearances are one in 20.3 million. Yes, that makes your stat look pretty lame from earlier, I gotta say. 
No, is that specific to this guy or specific to an average player? Is that, that is specific. Okay, here's what I'll say. That is specific to an average player in 2016. And for his career, Caleb Joseph has positive war, which does by definition mean that for his career, he was an above average player. I think it's two separate definitions, but I'll give you some leeway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. But no. What, what really kills me, this 2016 team still manages to claw their way to the playoffs. And they're tied for second, but because of a tiebreaker with Toronto and runs, Toronto hosts. And as I said with 2014, then the 2016 playoffs happen. There are three different games in which Caleb Joseph came into a situation with like a plate appearance that had a leverage index higher than one where if he'd been able to get a single RBI in these one-run games, who knows, we tie them, one of them was an extras, we win them in that. And any one of those games, we host that wild card game. But no, Caleb Joseph, in that 141, never recorded a single RBI. And to be clear, since the live ball era, there is no one else in that stratosphere. There's no one else with 100 who's like primarily a position player that was able to get that, even with one RBI over a full season. The closest is 111 plate appearances. So he has more plate appearances than the only other person to come close to his record. And now, the other thing is, we have those nine games from the other season. So we have 58 games and 172 plate appearances consecutively as we enter the 2017 season. Where once again, he is set to back up Matt Wieters. And through April 29th, he's now added on six additional games, 64 games. 190 plate appearances. We are still waiting for that next RBI. We get to game 65, April 29th in the Bronx against the Yankees. And at this time, Orioles 2017, it's another nice start. They're tied for first with the Yankees. Ubaldo Jimenez, after losing the season last year, is getting absolutely fucking shelled by the Yankees. Gives up seven runs. It's like uh, this rookie, Aaron Judge, last one out of the park at one point. We don't care about him, though. We care about what's happening with Caleb Joseph during this blowout. Top of the third, he gets his 191st plate appearance. He has a single off Michael Pineda to lead off the inning, but he's leading off the inning, so it doesn't fucking matter because there's no one on base. Still no RBI. 192nd, top of the fifth. There's a man on first. Screaming line drive to right center. It is caught. It is now the top of the sixth. The bases are loaded. It is the fourth time during this streak that the bases have been loaded for Caleb Joseph. Adam Warren has come in, and a wild pitch scores one run, but a wild pitch doesn't count as an RBI. And then Caleb (laughs) Joseph strikes out swinging. 193 (laughs) plate appearances. We get to 194. It's the ninth inning. The game is 12-2. to Like, it's been over for several innings. Ryan Flaherty's on base. And Tommy Lane's got Caleb Joseph coming up. He throws an 89-mile-per-hour four-seamer. Just, this has to have been him grooving it to him. Because Caleb Joseph takes that, and he does deposit it in the right center field bleachers. Caleb Joseph, in this bullshit, eventual 12-4 loss, does get a two-run home run. And he ends his streak at 193 plate appearances without an RBI. I can only imagine what young James was saying at this point. Well, so here's the thing. 
I, I wanted to touch on that a little bit because 2017, when the streak finally ends, we're like, oh, sick. And now we got that monkey off our backs and things are going pretty well. And I'm moving back to Baltimore. You're around 500 and scuffling a little bit, but surely they'll turn things around. And so the next several years happen. Caleb Joseph finishes 2017 <laughs> with 89 games. And that ends up being, honestly, his second best full season with the Orioles. He has a pretty solid 2017. The O's do not. Nor do they in 2018. And nor does Caleb Joseph. He truly sucks just as much as the Orioles do at this point. He bounces between the big league club and Norfolk. Doesn't add any more to Bowie, but because of those games with Bowie that he had during his rehab stint earlier, I do want to say his current record stands at 434 double a games there is one last bright spot though in 2018 i want to touch on before moving because there's someone who is making a second itinerant stint in the orioles organization except they get to the majors this time and that is corbin joseph corbin joseph does take some reps in the infield while caleb joseph is in the backstop they do get to play together same team a little bit casting shades if you know such greats as billy and cal ripkin and caleb and corbin joseph mentioned in the same breath here in orioles lore that is his last year with the O's. Plays 20 games in Arizona the next year. Both he and Arizona are not very good. And then in 2020, he does have like a very fun kind of final act with the Toronto Blue Jays. His nine plate appearance is exactly one hit during that time. It is another two-run dinger, much like the one that busted that slump so many years ago. It does give him two RBI. He'd been so bad with Arizona and in that last year with the Orioles that he had dropped his OPS plus into the 60s. This nine-plate appearance stint with Toronto is enough to raise his career OPS plus to 69. Okay. All right. I, you, I, you don't it's need pretty to get nice. every time. It's pretty nice. Okay. It it's is pretty, pretty nice. I would have preferred if it was 6.9 because of Caleb Joseph's particular skill set, but... I mean, an OPS plus of 69 is pretty fucking bad. Yeah, but 6.9 would have been even better. Well, he is, in addition to being this small sample size god with the Blue Jays, he's kind of like their clubhouse leader while he's on the taxi squad for him this whole season. This is the COVID season, and they're not you know, in Toronto. So he is a big emotional part. Maybe that's why he sticks around in Toronto after he retires after that. Gets like a couple minor league deals in 2021, but just decides to become a sports analyst for the Rogers Sportsnet in Toronto. He ends up with a career slash of 222, 272, 351. And in 1,367 plate appearances, he does have 127 RBI. That is just about one every 11, pretty on average. But again, for 193 of those, which is 14% of his career by plate appearances, he defied all expectations. He defied all odds. He was continuously shafted by just, I guess, being in a shitty spot in an otherwise like pretty good team's lineup. For whatever reason, he just could not bring it home. However, I hope that I have brought it home here for him today. Mr. 400 himself from Bowie, Caleb Joseph. That's my guy. See, you had me until he started working in Canada because right now I have to blame Canada for the fact that we cannot go outside or else we die. I'll let him know that his regional analyst job with Rogers Sportsnet has contributed to the wildfires currently plaguing you, Xavier. Yes, it is literally only his fault. The 14% figure just made me think, like, if his career was a week, that's like a whole day that he didn't have an RBI. And each of the other days, he would have, like, 20 RBI. 
But that one a day, completely like, normal amount, which means if you take that streak out, I didn't do this because the streak is everything that matters to me. It's all I've been able to think about this week. But if you take that streak out, presumably above average RBI production. Incredible. I mean, yeah, let's let's get into it. Let's get into the comparisons. I think like so what makes his thing different than Gadget Jones is like Gadget Jones, as you just put it, Caleb Joseph is an average to above average like RBI producer, theoretically. And if he's below average, he's only slightly below. Whereas like Gadget Jones's whole thing was not scoring. So like it's not surprising that he has that record. It makes Caleb Joseph that much more remarkable in its statistical oddity. And like that 23 million thing you said, I don't think it's quite that, but it's definitely a lot. So I want to first address Peter Buckley because there are some beautiful things about Peter Buckley, like the fact that he is a combination of both Glass Joe from the Punch-Out series and also, as you described him later, Homer from the one episode where he has in The Simpsons a boxing career and he just lets guys wail on him until they tire themselves out. So he's the perfect combination of those two. The Professor of Pugilism, it's all wonderful, but the losing is the point, almost. The, when, when you told me that there's like that level of kayfabe at the end, and that if it's borderline, it's going to always go to the other guys, there's an extent to which, like, if we're trying to do bad streaks, he did what he was there to do. Maybe not what he set out to do, and there's an argument to be made there, and I'm, I'm willing to hear it. But he did do what he was supposed to do. It just makes you think of boxing, and it's like, just a little bit of corruption. Just, just, just a little bit. As boxing fans, we're okay with just a little bit of corruption. When there's a lot of corruption, you know, that's when we have to draw the line. When it's just a little bit to make, you know, young guys get wins they don't deserve, we're usually fine with that. Just a little corruption, babe. It'll be fine. Okay, thank you. Right. Thank you, Diaz. I was, tr- I was hoping that you'd get that reference. Thank you. No, tell mom it's okay, Stan. Just a little <laughs> bit of corruption. I am definitely tempted by Charles Jones, though. While Peter Buckley, great. I, I do think it's it's between Jones and Joseph for me. The Jays. I love his connection to Spurs legend Caldwell Jones, who I now know has legendary Spurs status. Didn't previously, but Spurs legend. And... I mean, that brotherly time together, if I'm going to try and make this bit out of Caleb and Corbin, I can hardly stand up to the Albany State legacy that they have there for him. Can't necessarily compete with some of the excellent team names that he got. He literally got nice. Like, I know that's not how it's pronounced, but we're not in France, so it's how it's pronounced. (laughs) Emily in Paris went to nice. (laughs) (laughs) He's like... I think what I love about Gadget Jones is, man, if he was a hockey player, he would be talked about like an all-timer, just this dude who exclusively blocks shots and smacks people. If he could skate at all, there would be certain pockets of fans in like some of the old town cities that would swear to God he was like a top 10 all-time. Well, he would be like, I guess the equivalent would maybe be the way that Flyers fans look at like Dave Schultz, because like Dave Schultz was yeah, sure hockey. But Dave Schultz was good at beating the fuck out of people, and particularly, like, Russians. The biggest knock, I think, about Jones specifically, and then I have one that I think kind of approaches both of them, but the biggest thing for Jones, you said he had more shit to prove, and Diaz, this might have been the first time where we invoked that, and I'm not actually sure if the person had more shit to prove. Well, he, had, he hadn't set his record yet. He had to have his excellence in the record books forever as not scoring. 
But is that record not in and of itself proof that actually there is no more shit? <laughs> Listen, you thought I couldn't score before. <laughs> Here's the biggest thing. Gadget Jones is playing spot minutes. Peter Buckley is being called in like last minute just to fill in as a sponge, essentially. So there is an element for both of them where it is. There's, there's the influence of other contexts that allows them to reach these sad heights more easily. And also in both of them, at the end of the day, scoring and punching a guy real good, those are two pure player things. That's up to the guy to do that. And Caleb Joseph not only manages to still have a pretty sizable role on a playoff team, but he is also just set up for failure so often in trying to reach the end of this streak by his teammates. And so there's a, there's a tragic element to it. I posit, I put forward to you that Caleb Joseph might have that I think could potentially give him an edge. They said with uh, uh, hope looking at their two compatriots. James really wants to win, but Diaz did get my Randy Marsh reference question is what outweighs the other my desire to have my friend happy or liking my references being recognized you could vote for that if you want and i can try and look diaz in the eye listen i'm just like i just want to bring it back to gadget because a couple stats that i said that like i think aren't getting appreciated enough he had more blocks and field goals made he had more fouls than points and like to be able to do that and have both of those be into the thousands category, like you had to contribute something and there had to be some sure. reason people wanted you. He's, he's uh, a champion. I'm not trying to take away from Gadget Jones's body of work. Well, well, and then also the championship is the other thing that I wanted to mention because he was not playing basketball for the whole year and was essentially signed just for the playoffs and came right in and did his role and committed way more fouls than points scored. But listen, probably fouled the shit out of Charles Barkley, fouled the shit out of Carl Malone. We got to love that. Fouled the shit out of David Robinson. We don't have to love that. But then fouled the shit out of Shaquille O'Neal, which we should be neutral on. It's, um, I'm never convinced that a foul on Shaquille O'Neal affects him. It, it's truly like you or me being bit by a mosquito. It's, it's just like a slight level of annoyance without actually being physically affected. But no, I mean, I, I mean I'm like honestly... I'm drawn towards Peter Buckley. I don't want to bring him all the way back into this conversation. No, please, by all means, bring him back. But, Drag that old motherfucker out to the ring. He's always game. Stay like, ready. You don't have to get ready. Looking at looking at his list of like boxers that he's fought, like yeah, it's it's Kel Brook to Xavier's point, and then it's also Prince Nassim Hamed, which is like two entirely separate generations of boxers that he was the professor for. Uh, the, the equivalent would be like, imagine they brought some fucking bum out to give up the first home run to Hank Aaron, and then thirty years later they're like, "Hey, you want to you want to throw the ceremonial first home run to Barry Bonds?" Like that's almost like the time perspective that we're talking about there. So the longevity in a career where again you get hit in the head, and he did well enough at not getting hit in the head to still be able to safely participate in the welcoming of the careers of two of the greatest British fighters of all time. I, it does a lot for me. And the fact that, to your point, yes, the losing is the point, James, but the mental fortitude that it takes to do that, 
Like imagine if in Caleb Joseph's perspective, he knew going into the season, like, hey, man, you're going to come up 200 times and you're not going to get one RBI. Would he be able to get out of bed and do that? It's That's tough. a fair point. But if I may seize on a point that you made about how he just basically his whole strategy is avoiding getting hit. He's fighting by not fighting to some extent, which once again, kind of combined with the kayfabe. For me personally, look, if I lose two votes to Peter Buckley, if this swings Xavier all the way back in, respect that. But I I think the fact that there are other people saying sometimes that he lost in order to boost other people's egos, and that's why he has some of those losses, that is a tough pill for me to swallow. Fair, yeah. Not like Gadget was missing shots on purpose or... Gadget, presumably, when he put a shot up, was going full effort. And Caleb Joseph, man, I saw some swings during that time of 2016 and 2017. That dude did not stop trying. Uh, we have three great streaks here. I feel like, should we ask chat GPT? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. Let's take a look. What does chat GPT say? So I guess the full sentence is, who had the saddest career streak? And then we list the three athletes in order. And it'll say something that is completely meaningless and irrelevant to actually what we talk about, but will, it will be funny. Everything we talk about is already meaningless and irrelevant. It's all good. Yeah, but it's fun. Oh, absolutely. Should we clarify what the streaks are in our query? I think just ask it. I need to clarify that it's Gadget Jones we're talking about, too. Charles. Take Gadget Jones, then. It, no, Gadget Jones. ChatGPT will know. We'll just do Gadget Jones. All right, hold on. It's not working on my computer. <laughs> it's working. It's all right. We we are better than AI. We can we can figure this out ourselves. James is voting for Caleb Joseph. I know this. Here's a question to both of you, and maybe this will will actually swim me. Were these things that people were talking about at the time? Like, were people saying, "Oh man, is Gadget Jones going to extend the streak?" Uh, people, I presumably, were talking about Peter Buckley's yes. streak of '88. Yes. Yeah. But were people, like, aware of what Gadget Jones was doing, his pursuit of futility? To that extent, I don't know. I would be curious if I look up on YouTube, am I going to find, like, the bench went crazy when he finally scored? They lost that game by one, so I feel like they probably didn't really care. Because, like, people were talking about Kalu Joseph's streak by the end of that season. USA Today has an article about him at one point before the season's over saying, oh, man, is he going to do it? Yeah, I'm just getting a lot of Inspector Gadget when I try to Google him on YouTube, so I don't think I'm going to find it. All right, well, I want to break the deadlock. If, if you feel strongly about Gadget Jones, I can go to Gadget Jones. I don't think I can go to Peter Buckley because of the, the aforementioned kayfabe angle. I think I can look past Gadget Jones's small sample size of minutes in that streak because, you know, at the end of the day, there is a beauty to technicalities that we've appreciated here at the Hall before. So I, I can absolutely live with the outcome of Gadget Jones. All right, so now, now James I do think I'm laying with Caleb talking Jones. about. So now, yeah. I'm, now I'm changing my mind here. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, even if Diaz goes Gadget Jones, I'm just not – the only one I'm not voting for is Peter Buckley. What are you thinking, Diaz? I can go Caleb. All right, let's give this one to James so they can enjoy Orioles' futility, bringing them joy. So, you know, well, have that dichotomy. 
key piece in the happiest the Orioles have ever made me with 2014. Like, if you want to celebrate James being happy with the Orioles, nothing will ever touch the 2014 season, of which Caleb Joseph was a magical replacement for. He had a place in our hearts forever there. And it, it does sound like you all have offered him a place elsewhere that Diaz, I believe you are set to honor him with. Well, let's let's make it official at least, because I finally did get ChatGPT to work. And it said it has no idea who Peter Buckley or Gadget Jones are. But they do know about Caleb Joseph enduring the 0 for 54 hitting streak that Chris Davis had. That's <laughs> <one>. <laughs> 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 That's the best possible outcome. Could have that. What what ChatGPT doesn't know, we do know. Uh, we know ball. We know streaks here. And what we do know is that it is incredibly impressive for a baseball player to have such an incredibly long streak without an RBI, but to still be on the roster and still to be wanted. That means one thing: it means that the guys in the locker room recognize this guy. And it is now our duty to recognize this guy in our Hall of Guy, Caleb Joseph. Welcome to the Hall of Guy. Sorry that ChatGPT thinks you're Chris Davis. I, I mean, people know the 0 for 54 streak maybe a little more than the other one. But at the end of the day, Chris Davis, multiple RBI during that streak and none for Caleb Joseph. But a spot for him here in the Hall. I appreciate you all very much. So honoring a... Just weird effing dude that was our backup catcher for several seasons. I mean, you got to love backup catchers, right? Like, who's your favorite Yankees backup catcher, Xavier? Because for, for the Phillies, I'm stuck between Todd Pratt or Sal Fasano. I mean, before he was, uh, I'll give it to Joe Girardi. That's a pretty good answer. He still got you your last World Series, man. He did. He did. And apparently he's about to come, go become the coach at UCF, weirdly enough. Good for him. I hope he enjoys Florida. Like many people who spent a lot of time with the Yankees there in New York, he has now moved on to Florida. And we must move on to the closing portions of our show here, where we thank our producer, Craig, and all the programmers behind him. We thank our musical director, Don Hamm, and we thank you, dear listener, for sticking around with us. We will be back next week with our next edition of Relitigation. I am excited to look back on the guys that we have collected here over the last couple months. And I am excited to do that with two of my favorite guys, Xavier and Diaz. Uh, if you want to refresh your memory, perhaps you can find all of our information at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. Anything else from you guys? Nothing for me. I just love how comically bad AI is. It's so funny. <laughs> it is I'm bad. Not, but not Iverson. <laughs> It is bad, but hopefully we have not been. I have, though, been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as they say at the end of Space Jam, I believe I can guide. I'm going to leave this. This is, whole thing is going to be the outtake at the end. Just Xavier explaining Final Fantasy VII. Like the, the, the Final Fantasy VII canon is really difficult because... Because it's like Final 20 Fan games. Well, so Final Fantasy VII itself is confusing and long. But then they had Crisis Core, which was Zack's story in the prequel. 
They also had they Dirge of Cer- Valentine. They have Dirge of Cerberus, yep. uh, Vincent Valentine. They have Advent Children, which is the movie that's set after Final Fantasy VII. It's an entire movie about how the world is sick, and because the world is sick, it's causing everyone to get like some sort of plague called the Geostigma. And the three villains, what was it? Kadage? Fuck, I can't remember all their names. They, it's really stupid names. But they're like fragments of Sephiroth, which is like a thing throughout the story. 